case you're uh, in case you're visiting with us today and you think that we're a rather gloomy lot, know that we are not usually like this. This has been an unusually gloomy week, but just as night always comes up day, um, especially with the Lord, as Tim read from Lamentations. So it is here, and so I hope that today, even though you may be downcast, that we leave, that you leave in hope, Uh, and that's why I've decided to take a a little bit of a break and preach today from Hebrews chapter 12. So if you would turn to that book, it is towards the end of the New Testament, it comes before the book of James, so if you hit James or Peter or any of the Johns, or Revelation, turn left, go back, and you will find Hebrews chapter 12. And while you are turning there, let me pray for us before we, uh, that, that God would speak through his word. Lord, as I read and as we listen, and as I preach and we listen, I pray, Lord, that you would speak, that you would encourage our hearts, that we would lift our eyes to you, and that we would find hope. So be gracious this morning, Lord, and don't let us leave here in the same condition that we came. Change us by the power of your word and spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. This may come as a shock to you, but um, I was the chubby kid. Uh, through my school years, I did not like, I hated P.E., okay? From elementary school on up to high school, when I didn't have to take it anymore, I did not like P.E. Um, I couldn't climb the rope. That was embarrassing. I did not like to jump rope, and so when Jump Rope for Heart came around, that was a fundraiser we did, I did not participate. Um, or at least would jump for like a second and then sit down and give up. But my least favorite time of year was the mile run. I could not for the life of me fathom why every year we had to run a mile and do so in less than 11 minutes or have to run it again. Uh, So when that time of the year approached, uh, I just, I I hated it. Um, I, I I couldn't run 30 feet, okay? I just did not have the endurance. I found no joy in running. Found a lot of joy in Nintendo, not so much joy in running. Uh, And so I could not endure a mile run. Most of the time I would walk 
I would goof off, uh, and I surely didn't come in under 11 minutes. Now, things have changed a little bit. Uh, I've since run two races, and I, my mile time was less than 11 minutes. So. But somewhere in there, I found joy. Somewhere in there, it became worth it. Somewhere in there, I found a reason to endure the run. And here in Hebrews 12, the Christian life, living by faith in the good promises of God, is likened to a race, a race that we must run with endurance. But on weeks like this, endurance seems a little bit difficult to come by. Not just for the two deaths that we have experienced, but I know from talking to many of you that you are facing struggles within your family and struggles within yourself. You may feel like you're running on ice, that you're getting nowhere. Or maybe that you are at the beginning of a very long uphill climb and you're ready to toss in the towel. You just can't take the beating anymore. So what makes it worth it? Where do we find endurance? How does this long, amazing race become worth it in the end? Well, for the next few minutes, let's consider the book of Hebrews, our running coach. And let's see what this author points us to. You see my outline there behind you? Our only hope, the main point, our only hope for enduring and finishing the race is to set our eyes on Jesus. And that happens in two ways. First, we look to Jesus for endurance. We look to Jesus so that we can run with endurance. And then the next point is that we think about Jesus. We consider Jesus so that we don't grow weary. And they're really the same thing. You can view them as two sides of the same coin or maybe considering Jesus as, as the deeper part of looking to Jesus. But those are the two points. We look to Jesus so that we can run with endurance. And we think about, we consider Jesus so that we don't grow weary. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us run with endurance the race set before us. How? Well, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Look within yourselves and find that inner strength that you need to finish this race. You can do it. That's what a running coach would say. You've got to find that mental fortitude. You've got to find that physical strength deep down to to pull yourself up and finish the race. But he doesn't say that. He says, run the race by looking to Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And what does that mean? Let's think about that for a second. This whole letter, this whole book of Hebrews is actually about that very word, faith. The people that it was addressed to were struggling. They were being arrested. They were having their houses taken away from them. Some of them had even been killed, all because they confessed the name of Jesus. They were being persecuted. And they were thinking, if we could just go back, maybe if we just went back to Judaism, if we went back to the old religion, it would be better. And this author is writing to say, no, Jesus is better. Don't Go back. Don't turn around. Don't lose faith. And in Hebrews 11, a chapter before this, he gives this long list of Old Testament people who persevered, who lived, not by sight, but by faith. 
If you were to read that chapter, that phrase, by faith, is repeated almost 20 times as it describes the kind of life that men like Abraham and Moses and David lived, that the life that women like Rahab, the prostitute, lived, lives lived by faith, faith and not by sight. But what is faith? Well, if you look over at Hebrews 11.1, 1, it tells you, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not a leap, a blind leap from a cliff. Faith is not a shot in the dark. Faith is an assurance, a conviction, a strongly held belief that God is going to make his good promises come to fruition by his grace and power. Faith is a humble reliance on God who will make these things happen. And so all of those people in Hebrews 11 are commended to us as people who said no to living by sight, to the fleeting pleasures of this world, who said no to living that way and said yes to living by faith, to trusting that things were going to get better, to trusting that things that God was going to prove himself the Savior, that God was going to prove himself good. And we are told to do the same. But we've got one better. We don't just have them a cloud of witnesses testifying to the goodness of God, we have Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In fact, in Jesus, it's in Jesus that we find our assurance. It's in Jesus that we find our conviction held firm. What does he mean that, that Jesus is the founder? All right, well, F.F. F. F. Bruce, uh, a pastor and commentator, says it this way. Jesus is presented as the one who has blazed the trail of faith and as the one who himself ran the race of faith to its triumphant finish. Now, if you've ever run a trail race or a cross-country race, if you've ever run through the woods, having a trail blaze is kind of key, right? Because if not, what's going to happen? You're going you're to get caught up in the thorns. Um, you'll probably get lost. That's happened before, right? In order to run... We need a trail to run on. And what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is our trailblazer. He is the one who has set this course. He is the one who has run before us. He has finished the race, and he waits on the other side, beckoning to us. All right? Cheering us on, so to speak. Drawing us to himself. But it also says he is our faith's perfecter. And that means this, not only has Jesus opened up the way to God, not only do we have a new and living way through Christ, but he also perfects the faith of those who trust in him. He also makes our faith good. Philippians 1.6, I am confident, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus not only starts the race and finishes it and then says, all right, a boy, go get him. He perfects our faith. He brings us all the way home. He makes us perfect. So it's not, it's not the strength of our faith that helps us to run. It's not the, though, our, though our faith will strengthen over time. It's not the strength of our faith that enables us to run. It's the strength of our Savior. How strong 
is your Jesus. It's not a question of how strong your faith is. How strong is your Savior? Right? When you're, when you're in the valley looking at a steep uphill climb, when you are hurting, do you tell yourself, man, I just got to have more faith? Or do you say, like the father who wanted his son to be healed, who went to Jesus and he said, heal him if you can. Jesus said, if you can? Only believe. And the father said, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith of a mustard, faith the size of a mustard seed. Those amazing things. Our assurance is not good. Our conviction is not good because of its strength. Our conviction is good because of the one it holds on to. So when we look to Jesus, we must see a strong Savior. And that's why it's important that we think about, that we reflect on, that we consider Jesus so that we don't grow weary. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such suffering from sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary. That word consider means to ponder, to meditate on, to reason with, to think about. How do we think about Jesus? How do we reflect upon Jesus? More importantly, how do we view his endurance? That word endurance is in every verse that I've read today. We are to run the race with endurance because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. We look to him, we consider him who endured hostility from sinners. This is all about endurance. Why did Jesus endure? Well, verse 2 tells us, for, for the joy set before him. For the joy. What was that joy? In 2003, I heard a sermon by a pastor named Jean LaRue. And don't get lost, it's called The Right Side Upping of the Upside Downness. The Right Side Upping of the Upside Downness. And it changed the way that I forever thought about Jesus' joy and what happened uh, at Calvary. We often think, and so I'm, that's me telling you that I'm about to rip off Jean LaRue, okay? Uh, the passages and the thoughts I got from him. Most of his sermon I don't remember, but um, those, the two texts I'm about to use I got from him. Um, when we think about glory, when we think about heaven, we usually think about what it means for us. That we'll be made whole, that we'll be made right, that all that is upside down in us will be made right, and that's good. We need to think about heaven. We won't be any earthly good if, if we don't have an eternal heavenly perspective. Okay? But I wonder if you've ever thought about what it, mean, what, it, what it will mean, what it means for Jesus. What glory means for Jesus. What would you say is the most upside down moment in history? Go back with me to Jerusalem. Mark chapter 15, as Mark describes the trial, the torture, 
the crucifixion of Jesus. If you want to read along, Mark 15. Jesus has been betrayed and arrested. He has been tried uh, falsely before his own people. And he's been handed over to Pilate. And we pick up reading in verse 15. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. If you don't know, a scourge was a whip with lots of ends that had bone and metal in it. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Skipping down a little bit, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they crucified him and divided his garments, his clothes among them, gambling for them to decide what each one would take. And it was about 9 a.m. when they crucified him, when they put him on the cross. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And those who passed by taunted him, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And when noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until about 3. And at 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Think about the irony, the dark irony of that day. The God who created heaven and earth allows himself to be mocked and tortured and crucified. The very source of justice submits himself to injustice at the hand of his own creature. And what's worse than that, he, the very Son of God from all eternity, is forsaken by his Father so that he can bear the sins of his people. Surely, That is the most upside-down day in all of history. Surely no moment was darker than that moment. Nothing was more wrong than at that moment. And for what? What joy could be worth that? Turn with me to Revelation 5.
Revelation 4, John is given a vision of the heavenly throne room and of these elders, these living creatures, and all of creation bowing down and worship God who sits on the throne. It's a, it's a beautiful picture that we grasp to understand. And at the beginning of chapter 5, God, who sits on the throne, takes out a scroll. And this scroll is the purpose of God in history, and so it needs someone to open it and read it. The problem is no one's found worthy, which means God's purposes won't come to fruition, which means it's all a loss unless someone can be found. And so John begins to weep. And we'll pick up in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That most upside down of days in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago, God used to begin the right side upping of everything. What happened at Calvary, what happened to Christ, makes everything in you and in me Right side up. He turns it all around. So what is the darkest moment becomes the greatest moment. Because when Jesus conquered sin, when Jesus conquered death, he changed everything. And he rose from the grave on the third day, and it started a new era. And it will end when he, well actually it will really only begin when he returns. But more than that, more than what's made right for you and me, Jesus, the one who was paraded around like a sham king, 
The one who had to wear a filthy purple robe and have a crown of thorns beaten to his head and be mocked from those he would save. He received glory and honor and worship. Not only was Calvary the right side upping of the upside downness for you and for me, it was the right side upping of everything for God as well. That is the joy set before Jesus. And praise be to God that by His grace and power, He makes those things come to, come to pass. It is in that joy that Jesus found the ability to endure. For that joy set before Him, He endured the cross and its shame, and He left it in the dust, knowing what would be, knowing what would come to pass. So I finish with the call of verse 3. Because in these last days, it is very easy to grow weary. It is very easy to become tired. And so I encourage you, especially those of you who are struggling, to think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Think about, think about Jesus and His joy. Look to Jesus and run. Run until He brings you all the way home. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray this has been a picture of hope for us. God, that we, that we leave maybe grieving, maybe even doubting and still struggling and yet with hope. That we leave being able to, to say, I believe, help my unbelief. That we have hope not in ourselves, not in our ability to run this race, but in You who ran the race before us, who perfects our faith, and who endured the cross, its shame, hostility, for joy. For the joy that You would have in heaven in being glorified, for the joy that you would have in bringing your people to yourself, for the joy that we would have in knowing and seeing you. God, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus so that we do not lose hope. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.